0: You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast.
1: Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry
0: leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco, business unusual. So, w- welcome on board to the 2021 first podcast for Business Unusual. Topco's Business Unusual, and I'm very excited for our guest today. It's Bazani Moleka um, from the CEO of African Bank. Um, but Sonia, I think that i don't you don't know this, but I had a meeting with City about two years ago. We were doing a project called Africa Tech Week, and we were looking at how digital transformation is going to impact every business in the world and they were looking at partnering us and they told me about your crusade at recruiting data scientists and It was two years ago that I was like, "Wow, I want to speak to this woman who's transforming." The banking sector, essentially, in my eyes, and and really driving change before we've had this COVID initiative, and and I suppose the question is, what was what was your thinking about being so uh, forward forward thinking in terms of digital transformation trans- transforming the bank?
1: Hi, Ralph, and thank you so much for having me. And um, you know, when I became CEO, um, I definitely had a bee in my bonnet about just how quickly digital was transforming the world or technology was transforming the world. So shortly after I became CEO, I then had a strategy session with my team in Cape Town and we had this fantastic group of people facilitated. And we came out of there with a very strong understanding of the fact that if we don't get ahead of this thing, or at least try to get ahead of this thing, we'll get, very far, we'll get left very far behind. As a result, we decided coming out of that to prioritize three things. The first was culture, the next was customer centricity, and the third was data. And the logic behind that was, we know that data is increasingly more important, and we know that the ability to use data, analyze data, to anticipate customer needs, to drive your project, your your product development, um, to access different markets was very important. And to be able to do that successfully, we had to get data scientists on board. Now, I have been so lucky. Um, In part of the team that I, I inherited, from the previous CEO, we have, um, he's not a data scientist, but definitely he's a guy who loves data. Um, I often say that he's probably two parts machine and one part human. Um, so he's our head of data scientists. His name is Veer. Um, and, and and he's been the guy who's been driving um, this academy that we created, that we built, um, together with a company called Explore, through that we have graduated now two cohorts of data scientists, We've also recruited a whole lot more, and as a result, we are building our own cohort, uh, or our own team of very strong data scientists to ensure that we remain relevant to our customers into the future.
0: For sure. And I mean, no one predicted sort of COVID happening and the impact that's happened. And I know that you've been on that digital journey for quite a while. I mean, ha- are you seeing it's coming to some fruition? Are you seeing some benefits of that digital transformation that initial investment inside of data and digital transformation
1: so absolutely so i suppose as you know creditors are better and better um, and our ability to be smarter than anybody else um, in the room at identifying the right customers giving them the right size loan for the right term and so on I mean, that's absolutely the thing that we are best at doing. And this more and more requires data sciences um, and machine learning. So um, from that perspective, the guys are already adding enormous amounts of value. The second part of it is collections. So if you're gonna lend the money out, you gotta collect it. And the strategies that have been run um, through analysis of various information about our customers in order to collect better is unbelievable. Um, We've seen that we have, our collections has barely dipped um, during the lockdown period, and as you can imagine, that's an incredible achievement, given the fact that employment was, was ramping up, people's disposable income was ramping up, and the guys were very clever in anticipating this and coming up with different strategies to approach it. So that's really, really been good. The third thing I'll talk about around our data scientists is that from, I think, almost from the beginning, um, there was a lot of focus on voice analytics. And so we have a pretty big contact center. And the idea was there's an enormous amount of data that comes out of that, of that contact center because customers are talking about different things. Uh, and if we had that information, we would be better able to understand what our customer needs were. And uh, secondly, we know that if we had access to how our people are talking to our customers, if we had access to how, to what our best um, agents are doing that our worst performing agents are not doing, we could then actually figure out how to make sure that all our agents and um, have the right tools at hand to be able to be really good and various other things right, and so in the last I think in November last year. We were the first bank in South Africa to partner with Call Miner, which is the leader in voice analytics in the world, um, and they're going to help us to transcribe each and every single call, which will enable us to achieve all the various things I've just spoken to you about now. Um, and all of this will help us with customer acquisition, with service, um, and obviously in the long run, with profitability. So I'm really excited about what we're seeing coming out of those teams, and I know this is just the beginning.
0: It's, it's super exciting. I'm like, I can feel it, and and I think you get that sense. That it's a uh, it's a sustainable long-term thing. It's not a quick fix because you've got to get the right people and and work in it. I mean, some of the things, because there's people out there who are going to be listening to this and saying, that's fantastic. But, you know, that took some conviction in you and belief. And, and I wonder where that came from. Is that from reading books? Is that from – I mean, some of the books that I read was like Salim Ishmael's Exponential Organizations that sort of yeah. – Gave me insights into those companies that were thriving and how they were using data and, and dashboards and digitization. What was your inspiration
1: for so this? I actually think mostly um, it was just the, and I, I guess it's a lot of the reading we were doing. Oh, I read a book called Digital Human. That's maybe the starting point.
0: Digital Human. Um, yeah. Digital
1: Human. Um, And in this book, um, I can't remember the author's name now, but initially he'd written a a book called Digital Bank. Um, And he talks about how we are increasingly using data and how we are using data and how digital is gonna take over the world. And he built this very compelling image of what a bank must look like in the future. So we know that banks more and more are gonna compete with Facebook and Google and the big, the the, the fans, right? The big technology companies. Um, We all want that same experience, the same ease of use, with the right privacy um, and and security (laughs) protocols. Um, So we all want that. And if that's what I want, it takes time to build it, which is why we decided as a team that if we're going to get there, we really need to start now. Then secondly, the people who really inspired us, who really kind of took it over the edge, were the consultants we were using um, at the time to help us to craft our strategy. They really understood the environment. Um, And they're very passionate about the bank as well, which I think is fantastic. So we continue Mm -hmm. to work with them. Um, to make sure that we are, um, you know, we, we remain on the right journey, we keep ourselves accountable, and we're hitting the right metrics. Uh, right, the, the right metrics as well um, to measure our progress and make sure that we are co- continuing to do the right things.
0: So, do you think like consultants and outside help is important? I mean, Salim sort of says that the best brains for a company sit outside the organisation. In other words, you can tap into the customer and other clients. I mean, that sort of sounds like what you did as well.
1: I love that idea what, an, what a fantastic notion so we decided that customer centricity matters right so if you're not listening to your customers you're going to lose them um, no. and if you aren't listening to consumers in general you, you can't acquire more customers so we definitely haven't thought of them as being the best the best brains outside our, our, our company but i definitely like the idea and so i suppose we we all have different experiences with consultants some are great some are really not great uh, even after paying them millions of rand Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with these particular consultants, um, it's called the Field Institute. We did mm-hmm. really well. Um, they really spent, they spent an enormous amount of time and energy understanding what's happening globally, understanding what's happening in South Africa, and then figuring out how to locate us in all of that. Mm-hmm. And then we work together to figure out how we, you know, build the right um, the right direction um, and the right execution fra- um, framework to get us to where we want to go. I
0: mean, I mean, Salim in his book talks around massive transformative purpose. And I know that you, you've sort of created this purpose for the bank. And, and do you think that, that that was like the core of you getting to the customer and using data? Do you think that was, those are some of the core things that led out these values, these important milestones?
1: So um I suppose the the past around kind of using data and digital, those were much more related to how do we become relevant to our customers in the future. But you know, yeah. your, your point about purpose um is so important, Rolf. So I've I've often said that the reason I joined African Bank was just because of his culture and its people. You know, so I, mm. I had I've been an executive director for a few years, and I really loved the management team. I loved how they work together. I loved that every time I, I showed up at the bank, the, the energy and, and the people just really appealed to me. And when I joined as, a, as, a, as an executive, I only became more convinced of that. Um, and I think it is because the bank is inherently purpose-driven. So if you, if you, if you, if you were to speak to the founders of African Bank, um, so the, the, the guys who founded in 1975, they would say to you that they founded the bank because they wanted to create financial services for Black people living in townships who otherwise would not have access to it, right? So this is about serving those who otherwise would not have service. And I think that credo and that thread has run through everything that we do, because then thought it's not just about serving them, it's about serving them well, it's about evolving with them. Um, and so when we sat down and, and thought, well, how do we frame this purpose um, in a way that will uh, appeal and galvanise our people to act. We came up with this purpose of advancing lives through financial and related services. Because that's what we want to do, right? You want to mm-hmm. take people who otherwise wouldn't have opportunities and help them to access new opportunities.
0: Yeah, I think what we're seeing is purposes is, is sort of uh, caught a lot of things. But I mean, even the, the, the things that I'm seeing with the banks, so some of your billboards about you know the, the best uh, interest rate there's so many. It's it seems that you're picking the very best ideas or or philosophies or principles. Um, you're very targeted in terms of your approach. You know you want to serve that customer, and you've got a very compelling offer in terms of the best interest rate and giving the best service. I mean, is that is that something that you brought to the table? Is that a team effort? Where does that sort of come from? Because it 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 almost seems. Um, you know, in, in terms of South African, it, it's very advanced. Um, okay. You sort of see those sort of principles possibly in the States and the UK, but it seems very advanced and very clear and purpose-driven.
1: Um, I'm so glad you say that. You know, Ralph, often we say we connect the dots backwards. <laughs> so I think, you know, we knew coming out of curatorship that we had to build a deposit base, a very strong deposit base. Um, and primarily because you wanted to achieve two things one was to get south africans to start, start trusting us with their money because you can imagine um, the brand needed some rehabilitation and then secondly um we needed to to have a much more robust balance sheet so pre-curatorship um, the bank had relied mostly for its funding from institutions um, and because we were able to lend at very high interest rates we could then Um, borrow money from other institutions at very, very high rates and pay them very high rates. As a result, our funding was very expensive. So it was about 4% higher than what other banks were paying in the market. So we knew that to try and get that funding rate down, we would need to have average people in the street giving us their money because the average rate of funding from depositors is a lot lower. So we've been thrilled to find that to get to a point where more than 35% of our funding is now from retail depositors. This has increased from about 2-3% in 2017, so three years ago. So it it truly is an extraordinary achievement. And we knew that to achieve that, we would have to pay up so we are still paying more than what the other banks would pay you for your retail deposits, but we it's certainly a lot less than what we would be paying if we were getting all our money from institutions. So it's I think that's unbelievable, that's absolutely one of the best stories of the last three years that we've been able to, to, to achieve this um, and to get more, so many more South Africans thinking about the bank and actually engaging with the bank. So I think that's um that's truly awesome.
0: And and I suppose the saving savings culture, I think that um it's something that, that certainly we need to be thinking about. Um, how do we save more? How do we invest more? Um, yeah. And so I think you've indirectly changed behaviors and in a way the culture of community. I must tell you, I, I
1: love that point. So one of the campaigns that our social media team ran, I think it was last year, maybe it was the year before. 2020 was such a complex time. Let's go with the year before. Does It was, <laughs> it was, a it was time.
0: three years in one
1: you're <laughs> right exactly um so I think in, in 2019 um, they ran this campaign on social media about how about building you a roadmap to save for your special occasion so saving for your wedding dress saving for your um your degree your education saving for your child's education whatever it was saving for your holiday um and what they would do is they would help you to build a roadmap to this thing and you could see the excitement on social media people engaging with this notion of oh my gosh you know if i save x amount of money and i get x amount paid in interest i can actually get to where i want to go and um, so i do hope you know through these through these little initiatives that we've had over the last few years that we have contributed to increasing the saving culture in the country
0: yeah i certainly want to get more into that but i mean you know just talking around the curatorship quickly i mean it seems that you've taken a, you know, a fairly hard. Uh, situation and turn it around to your benefit and I almost get a sense that when I speak to successful people like yourself that's a common thread that seems to come through in their life in general is taking challenging opportunities and turning it to your advantage and um, I know that you (laughs) as a young girl went to boarding school, I also went to boarding school, you went a little bit younger than I did I think when you went to boarding school, was it eight? I went when I was 11 years old and I ran away and I got all the way home and it was snowing. <laughs> so I, sort of, I became a good runner and sports person because of that, but um, <laughs> I stuck it out for another four years. But, I mean, how was your experience at boarding school? How did, how did you find that? Because, I mean, if I look at, you know, and it's probably been, you know, over-celebrated, I'm not sure, but as a first black female CEO of a bank in South Africa, um, it is an amazing accolade, it really is. And it's no easy feat either. And I think there's a lot of people who are thinking, well, how did you do it? You know, what, what, is, what did it take? And I know there's no easy answer, but but certainly, you know, I'd love to hear some of that journey of your, your father, your upbringing, your siblings, um, we, we know it obviously runs in the family as well. Your, your sister, congratulations, to it, was just made Thank the Auditor you. General of South Africa. I mean, that is a staggering sort of... If I'm going to bet on a family, I'm going to bet in your family.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it, Rolf. If you were to ask my younger sister, she would say that the reason I, I became CEO is because I was trying to chase my older sister, yeah. um, who at the time was effectively the CEO of the Auditor General's office. Um, and she may not be wrong, by the way, but yeah. um, I think <laughs> boarding school, Sylvan <laughs> rivalry is a, is a very powerful thing. Um, look, I mean, I, uh, boarding school sucked. I mean, I, I was eight years old. Um, I could barely speak English and suddenly I found myself in a sea of white faces in 1987. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, did, I definitely didn't enjoy it, but certainly it was a massive challenge and I had to overcome it right yeah. and a big part of that was learning how to speak the language so you know actually learning english but also the language of being in a private school the language of being in that environment which is so different from my own and when i look at my life i think so much of it has been about that it's been, it's been about being mm-hmm. going to the deep end of something strange and finding my way out of it and um, so you know even with um getting into in, into African Bank. So, I mean, I, I joined as the as the non-executive in 2015 because Louis Van Zeno, who was the chairman at the time, you know, phoned me and said, look, I would like you to think about this thing, um, which I did. Um, and Louis at the time said to me, you know, Basani, if we do a good job with African Bank, we can turn it into an investic for people on the margins of our society or people who are, um, you know, not in the mainstream of of our economy. Um, And I just remember that as being a very powerful drive, right? Because I do feel very strongly that we need to figure out how to resolve our poverty problems, how to resolve our inequality issues. Um, And Libby just had a brilliant vision and and I agreed with it. So that's why I joined. And then of course I mentioned to you that I then became an executive after that. Um, And I think, you know, when you say how do you get there it's mm. undoubtedly about the people yes absolutely that your childhood experiences as well um you know kind of forge a certain determination and so on but i think mm. i've just been surrounded by the most awesome people so my mm. father was an attorney um and you can imagine getting all of his of his four children through private school um, in the 1980s not an easy feat Um, at that time. So he worked extremely hard, we barely saw him, uh, but he was just so motivated, so driven, so entrepreneurial. And I think all of those things landed in all of us and just an extraordinary leader. Um, so, you know, when I think about my dad, I I often think about the many times I would see him giving speeches and founding this thing or the other thing, just an incredible leader. Um, And one of the things that maybe um, really created my sense of place and space in the world, was that <clears throat> when we were, when we were in so I, I so I was born in Sochanguiwe, which is just north of Pretoria. And I remember whenever there would be riots, which at some point felt like every single weekend and you've got these massive caspers, you've got the tear gas and so on, and it's just like chaos. And the very next day, there would be like this long snaking queue um, at my home with people coming to see my dad, to ask them for help in finding their kids who had been arrested or had gone missing and so on. And as a result, you know, I think for all of us, we ended up getting a very strong sense that our place in the world is to leave it better than what we found it. Our place in the world is to make a difference um, to the you know, to the plight of others, um, because, you know, without that, really, what are we doing? So, you know, as a result, you know, I think he was probably okay, undoubtedly my biggest champion and my kind of strongest motivator. Um, and then after that, he introduced us to many other people who played that role for us and continue to, thank goodness. And then, of course, from a professional perspective, um, having been at first round for five years, I mean, between James Formby, Herman Bosman, Paul Harris, you know, these people played an incredible role in telling me that actually we believe in your potential. Uh, and we want you to be successful. And then I think finally, when Louis Bonzano and and, and um, Brian Riley made a call, so those two gentlemen were at at at, at, um, at um, African Bank and, and made the call to appoint me as as CEO. Um, you know, I think them having had the faith, the, the trust, the belief. I mean, what an amazing opportunity!
0: It seems that um, you know I. I I obviously you know, knew I was going to be speaking to you and I did a lot of research and I, and I kind of maybe over-researched because then I started researching your dad and I realised, wow, um, what sounds like, I've never met him but sounds like an awesome person. Um, he set up the Black Lawyers Association in 1975. He mentored the president. Um, <laughs> how's that? That's... That's and absolutely, absolutely true. And I was thinking, if he mentored the president, then gee, how did he mentor you? And so, I, you know, I just get this overwhelmingly – and I think that's why I was so excited. I was so excited because I also wanted to find out some of the things, some of the lessons, the principles that he shared with you. Um, I think also what comes across often is that, you know, looking at your profile – you are very studious. You're hardworking, and you're academically inclined. And, and you know you got the MBA at Kellogg, and you know you've got all these sort of um, academic accolades. But then you know when you read about your father, who owned the the supermarket store, he was he he really was an entrepreneur who was, yeah. and that sense of getting to know the customer that was part of your culture. It wasn't that you just talking. It's like you that's what the family did, and so. Um, and those were ingrained when you were a really young girl so i mean what what, what do you, what can you what can you say you learned from that 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 experience of yeah are you proud of that part of things um that well?
1: no absolutely my father was extraordinary he passed on three years ago um so
0: thank
1: you i mean like it, it's a it, it was a terrible loss but also an opportunity to think through just how blessed we were to have him. Um, So one of the things I often think about um, is the story that a lot of people tell was that when I was small, I would follow my father everywhere. I'd imitate his walk, I'd imitate how he talked to people. um, And every, I think it was every Sunday, every Saturday evening, I'd go to the the, the shops with him, to the grocery store that we owned and just hung And I'd like kind of like follow him and hang onto his legs and I'd watch him talked to almost every single customer in the shop. As he would walk through, he would know them by name, he would know their story, he would ask them about so-and-so and so-and-so, how did this go? I mean, he just was amazing. It was just this man, this force that everybody knew, everybody admired, and it was because they believed in, in his ability to help them to make their lives better, right, imagine that. And so mm-hmm. in, in my eulogy to my dad, after he passed, I said, in many ways, in my mind, he was the president, the president of Toshang then right? Because he was just so well known and was so committed to the lives of those people. And I think that's what forces you to kind of, that's the, those, those things, those experiences, make you think hard about the importance of looking after people. Yeah. Um, and I do think, you know, human beings are here to look after people, after each other. I mean, if we don't, nothing else from COVID is our interconnectedness. Um, and mm-hmm. I think I learned that from him. Then the second lesson from my dad um, is that I, in my natural state, speak very, very fast and mm-hmm. um, it is what it is and if I get to a point where I'm speaking too fast then I stutter and then it's a mess um, so and I, I really struggled with this particularly in my teens so I had to give a speech for something it may have been my sister's wedding and um, I was speaking just after my dad and he knew how nervous I was so as he comes off the stage he takes me by the shoulder and he says to me just be deliberate And and I feel like since then my public speaking capabilities have just continued to improve, right? If you can stop and breathe and believe that people wanna hear what you have to say, you'll be fine. Even if you're not necessarily saying the most uh, profound things. And and then of course, the the last thing that was important for me with my dad. So when I came back from business school, um, so I now had this MBA from this glitzy institution and Mm -hmm. my father, was just so blown away and so excited, you know, about this, the fact that I'd done it. Um, And he said to us, oh, so then at some point I was having a career issue. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with my career. And I was asking him, like, listen, I'm stuck. What should I do? And he says to me, I can't help you anymore. You need to phone this one and this one and this one and go and figure out what you need to do. And that's a gift, right? The ability to say, "I, I believe I've reached the end of the line and being able to assist here. But there are so many people who can do it. And I think those lessons have really been meaningful for me.
0: So awesome. Wow. Th- thanks for sharing that. I was really looking forward to get- getting some cool. insights there. But, I mean, uh, one of the other things is, you know, I looked at doing an MBA as well, and you've done an MBA. And then I look at your investment in... And people who haven't gone through the traditional school, university system with these data scientists, and again, it's yes. something that sort of interests me, data, insights, that sort of stuff. I mean, where are, you, where are you seeing the future opportunities in South Africa in terms of upskilling people from sort of marginalized or people who haven't had the same solution? Are you, are you seeing a bigger opportunity now with digitization and looking at skills as opposed to maybe an education that's looking yeah. at knowledge?
1: So I've had the privilege of being um, a founding trustee of the Click Foundation. Now the Click Foundation was founded by Nicola Harris, um, I think in 2014 it was. And what the foundation does is that it um, it works across the country in different schools, mostly not, not non-fee paying schools, so public schools, um, and it delivers a product, it's an online product that we deliver. Um, so we, we actually either give them laptops if they don't already have laptops, um, and we load this pro- this program on. It's called Reading Eggs, and effectively, kids put on earphones, um, and they're allowed to go through the process of learning English um, at their own pace uh, through this program. And it's incredibly effective. We found that kids. Who use reading eggs typically perform better at school than kids who don't use reading eggs. So it really has worked well. Um, and also, she's managed. Nicola has managed to bring down the cost of um, doing this over time as well, which makes it infinitely scalable, which I think is great. The other thing that um, the Flick Foundation has started doing as well is to start with uh, is to introduce mathematics and numeracy into in, in, into schools. Now, I really do think that you know to, we have to leverage technology. Um, I think we Um, have to make sure that at the very, very minimum, um, our kids are numerate and that they're literate. Um, And then I think after that, we need to figure out how we create, I would say shorter courses, you know, so maybe you can't spend a full 12 years in school. So Mm -hmm. how do we make sure though, that you can have bite-sized courses that you can do online in your own time, but over time you can, you know, work towards having a metric or the equivalent of a metric. And then I think after that, it has to be the same for us. So one of the things I worry a lot about my business and about me in particular is that um, I I believe in the notion that the success of an organization will be determined by the velocity of its learning. So how quickly your people upskill themselves um, and how quickly leaders upskill themselves is going to determine whether or not we become successful in the future. And that's tough. You know, mm-hmm. when you're running a business and you feel like you barely ever run it for yourself, to then want to pursue a PhD or to pursue, you know, I don't know, learning some other um, difficult discipline, it just isn't there. And I think we need to figure out how we create these accessible bite-sized courses that, in it, that, that are easy to access, you know, not so easy to access both in terms of getting to them, but also intellectually so that people can um, continually learn and relearn and understand
0: i know i i kind of get the assumption that you have invested in the quick foundation because you're an avid reader um have you always been a big reader
1: yes um i absolutely have well maybe let me say from senate eight so what that's grade nine these days and yeah. um, so what are my memories about my dad in grade nine so i, I did not really like school my older sister mm-hmm. liked school she was really good at it and i hated her <laughs> um <laughs> And um I got to grade eight and or to standard eight and I started doing my own my own courses. So you, know, you can choose your own subjects. And mm-hmm. I loved them. I found that I was so happy and as a result I started reading. And I liked it so much that um, I was in boarding school, as you know, and I'd come home every Saturday. And every Saturday I'd get home um, and I'd sit at the dining room table, lay out all my books, and just start reading and drinking copious amounts of coffee. So on one of these Saturdays, my father comes home in the middle of the afternoon and there I am on my own, just enjoying, you know, immersing myself in these books. And he says to me, you can't become a boring teenager. This is not gonna happen. So he gave me money and said, go. (laughs) I don't care where you go, just go. Um, So I think that was, yeah, the year that I discovered this is something that I really love to do.
0: Yeah, I I think I'd left school already when I, my brother was also an avid reader. He'd read a book a day. And I'd oh go play gosh. football or do something else, and only after school did I start reading. It was funny, but now I read a lot. Now I read a lot because I think being you know, being a leader of an organisation, you have to keep pace, and I think you need inspiration. You're looking for insights, uh, yeah. up that positive attitude, um, and then I think it gets almost addictive, right?
1: Absolutely, and there's so many good books, right? Yeah. So it's, it's hard to not want to read them um, and to hear what people are doing differently. And, and now so many people are writing about, and not just books, I um, mean, articles, people are writing about how to lead an organization that has become virtual overnight. Um, yeah. And that for me is a, is a huge issue, you know, and um, it's very easy to kind of sit in my home and think everything's fine. Uh, but, you know, that's obviously not true. Um, and it's so a question of figuring out how do you get the you know the, the pulse of the business when you're so far away from it Um how do you communicate more effectively um in the, in the midst of this and i've been loving all the insights that are out there
0: for sure but what i saw is is my 14 year old he loves computers he loves games all those sorts of things very intelligent loves cooking but he doesn't like reading and so <laughs> Over the holidays, that was a big challenge, and I, and I realized I had to read him a book, and then he got excited about it once I started helping him read. Oh, nice. um, that's so extraordinary. That's a big challenge as well with young people. They're so distracted with their their phones and their gadgets and their computers that yeah. it's so consumed these YouTube videos and these TikTok videos that it's very hard to go into something substantial to commit to.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that might um, give you some perspective, so Susan Masana started the Future Nation Schools a few years ago, and one of the things that all the kids have to do, I think it's one at, once a day for 30 minutes, is that they must get a book and they can sit anywhere on the grounds, they can sit under a tree, they can sit at their desk, whatever they're going to do, but sit somewhere quietly for 30 minutes and read. And he said to me, you find that the girls can do it, right? They can yeah. happily sit under a tree, Read with anyone else and come back. He said, the boys just want to run around and be a little bit raucous. And, um, you know, and I just think, and, and he said, look, in, in his view, he, he thinks it's something that happens throughout life that, you know, girls typically um, are much more likely to, to want to spend time reading whereas boys don't, but boys will probably pick it up later. And it's, yeah. it's exactly what you were saying as well about picking it up later, when it becomes really important. And my, my, the second thing I want to say is, you know, I don't have kids. And in many ways, I'm grateful that I don't because I don't know how you raise kids in this age. Uh, <laughs> but I do have I do have nieces and nephews who I love dearly. Um, and I often lament that these kids spend more time on YouTube than they do on anything else. And this can't be good. Um, mm-hmm. So my hope is that, you know, they learn something from it that we don't yet know is there. Something positive, that is. Um, <laughs> that is, that we don't yet know that it's happening and in future, as we've started to better understand the impact of these changes that we've been seeing and how kids engage with information, will actually empower them to be more successful in the future.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think just that careful balance of just making sure they're connecting with real people as well. I mean, you, you studied law, and in part, I'd imagine that there was an inspiration from your father But I think there's something else. There was a study recently about the top billionaires in South Africa and Africa, and half of them studied law. Um, Half of them have a law degree.
1: That's good to know.
0: (laughs) Your billionaire status is coming, don't worry.
1: (laughs) From your your lips to guys'
0: ears. Also, um, before you were the CEO, you you were operations. And again, there seems to be this big shift where many CEOs of organisations are either from, you know, the, the auditing profession or from marketing. And we're seeing with, with Apple now, um, Tim Cook, and a whole host of other organisations, the operations director is becoming the CEO. What, what, yeah. Why do you think that trend is, 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 is shifting now?
1: Um. That would be a tough question for me to uh, to answer because I haven't thought about it. But I, I'm going to tell you something different that I am um, that I am imagining should happen more often, and I, I imagine must happen in our business. Is that the CIO or your digital uh, person should become the CEO? You know, so if we're living in the in, in a world where we're saying we're going to be running a software company with a banking license, and everybody has a similar story across the industries, if that's where you're going, you need to have somebody who actually loves technology um, and also is strategically minded and can um, make things happen. But I mean, going back to your initial question about the operations, I suppose so much of a business is about bringing things together, right? Um, And bringing different disciplines together and making it work. And I wonder if people get much more of that in an operations environment than they would do, say, in kind of only the function of finance, where people are kind of almost uniform.
0: Well, maybe it's the execution part. Maybe they're used to executing and they know where all the challenges are and where the opportunities lies yeah. for the organization.
1: I can believe that. I think that sounds right to me as well.
0: So, for sure. So, I mean, you spoke a little bit about Facebook and Google and these semi-so competitors or whatever in this platform world that the banking industry find itself. I mean, at, at Africa Tech Week this year, we, one of the speakers mentioned that when an organization, a startup, when they partner with a platform business a bank like yourself there's an 80 percent chance of success so they're almost guaranteed of success when they partner with a bank what's your what's your thinking there
1: <laughs> so are you giving me the example of kind of amazon and i think it was a was it deutsche bank of america is that kind of where your thinking is you know
0: well a startup, I, I I think that the thinking was that the banks have the customer base. They have the yeah. they they have that customer base that if an organization who's got some tech or an opportunity, if they partner or invested in by a bank that their chance of success is almost immediate because they're going to get scale right. very, very quickly. So it's not so much about funding anymore. It's not so much about knowledge, it's actually about access to markets and right. Um and, and so I think that there was a sense before these big tech companies were going to take out yeah. the financial services companies, but it seems that in fact financial services companies have, have got a a big opportunity themselves um by integrating mm-hmm. tech within their 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 um audience, their customer. Yeah.
1: And your story or your observation is absolutely right. I think initially there was a concern that these fintechs were going to take over the world and actually be competitors, whereas now they, it's clear that they can. You know, their best chance is to partner. I think that is right. And, and you'll recall um, the idea behind open banking, particularly in the UK, was about exactly this, that ultimately the banks hold the relationships um, and the fintechs will only be successful if they're able to uh, participate in that ecosystem. Um, and, yeah. you know, Maybe now I'm gonna sound like a millennial, but you know, in a world where we need to figure out how to have more entrepreneurs, and in South Africa, obviously, our big issue is around the oligopolies that we have and the fact that we don't have enough mid-sized businesses. And do you think you know the, the notion of creating more ecosystems um, and more partnerships um, is one way that we can use to create that, um, to create more opportunities for entrepreneurs and to create more opportunities for customers as well. So one of our big strategies as well, an important part of our strategy, let me put it that way, is our partnership strategy. Um, And at the moment, we are evaluating opportunities with a number of different fintechs around, you know, know, well, so some fintechs, for example, are better able at acquiring customers than we are, right? So effectively, we want to get into a partnership with them so that we can get access to their customers. And then similarly, others need to sell into ours. So I do think that there can be this um, progression towards building more ecosystems and, and, and by so doing, spurring the economy.
0: For sure. I mean, one of the books that I that I read recently was um, Clayton Christensen's book. I don't know if you've read it. Nice. The no, Innovations no,
1: Framework. No, I have not read it.
0: So, and it, it really talks around how an organization's innovation, so if you look at someone like Intel, um, yeah. That the, that the the price of a chip was reducing by half every 18 months, but the processing speed was doubling every yeah. 18 months. So it was essentially getting cheaper to produce a chip. And and I suppose what's happened with a lot of innovation is, is how do businesses cope with reduced costs, essentially, and going to far more customers. And so their profit margins essentially shrinking and the dilemma there, what do they do? And I look at African Bank and I see it as almost like it's perfect – opportunity, because in a way you're disrupting the whole financial services, your business model is going to the unbanked and the poorly banked, should I say, and yeah. finding ways and I see it as a big opportunity yeah. of it's almost like that Clayton Christian perfect example of, of disrupting the banking institution.
1: No, I, I love that description. <laughs> and, you know, so I agree with you, I think what's interesting in banking. Um, which I think is so much unique um, to banking, is the fact that the cost base is actually pretty fixed. It's a very big cost base, and, and mostly because of the, um, the regulatory burden. Um, I actually, I was quite stunned to see just how much legislation is written every year that eventually applies to banks. And as a result, the amount of compliance that's involved and so on, And obviously all of these things also make us a little bit slower, probably a lot more slower than an ordinary fintech um, and innovating and, and, and doing new things. So and, and so the, as a result, I think for as the key becomes, how do we make sure that we become as lean as efficient in managing our regulatory burden and all the various other things that we have to be doing? Um, and I think we're working enormously hard on that. But what I'm really excited about is the fact that we are starting to see our customer numbers grow, because that's where um, the, the future of the organization is gonna lie. It's gonna lie in, the number of, in how quickly we can build our customer base and how quickly we can cross sell new products to them and how quickly we can create new products and how quickly we can create partnerships that actually are profitable for the organization. So now that we're past kind of like, you know, the more difficult things around rebuilding our image um, and convincing people to um, give us their money and know that it's safe with us, we can now start doing the really sexy stuff. Um, around making sure that our customers uh, believe we're giving them the, va- the best value proposition compared to other any co- to compare to other any, any compared to any other competitor in the market. That was harder than it seemed.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know you had some pretty um, strong targets. I think you were wanting like 1.7 million customers by 2021. I mean, are you oh, on track for that? I know that COVID was probably, uh, as they say, you know, punch in the face by Mike Tyson, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But you back. Sure. But yeah. I mean, how strong are your ambitions for new customers at the moment? Is it still on track?
1: So um, we're not on track for the 1.7, unfortunately. But um, mm-hmm. what we but we are seeing growth. So you're right. You know what's interesting about um, the lockdown period is that so in March we go March April was hard lockdown, um, and we absolutely saw that our sales plummeted. Um, And then as people started um, getting back out again, as the lockdowns got um, easier, we saw that people were back in the branches and our sales were back up again. So to us, it's absolutely clear that having a branch network is very important and people are going to continually want to operate with us through our branches. And that means that we do need to have a physical footprint if we're gonna get customers through the door. Um, And then of course, having said that, um, you know, we are starting to see a very steady improvement in the number of customers who are engaging with us um, through our digital channels, as well as through our call center, which is definitely what we want, given the fact that that will give us a lower cost base um, as we go into the future. And so that is improving. But I do think for the next five years, our focus must be on figuring out how we continually improve our physical presence so that we can get more customers on board.
0: So funny. Eh? I mean, I, I did a podcast with two of our winners. One, one was Yappy um, Chef, which you probably know, and I'm sure you shop at. And, and <laughs> of course. They, they started their life for 10 years as an online store. And within a year of going into the physical, so they, they did yeah. the reverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the online, they moved to a store environment. And they absolutely grew massively from having that, those stores because they said that physical, especially yeah. in Africa, was so powerful, you know, shop at uh, the mall, people go, they would they had the brand, they've tested it through the online, and then they were able to really drive that brand. And the other one was Matthew Shoes here at Beloyed. I don't know if okay. you, you've heard of Matthew Shoes, but he was, he again, was selling for shoes online for two years. Through e-commerce he was struggling he couldn't get a store then he sort of made it and then started started opening up stores. i think he opened up 14 new stores through covid wow but he did it by testing his market through the online experience but his actual growth has expanded through the store so that hybrid sort of it seems that people were going from the the store the retail store to the online, but it seems like now people are testing with the online and moving more back to the store yeah. to enhance that.
1: My, my sense, you know, is we are social creatures, right? Human beings are just social creatures. I actually think we really just we want that interaction, and you just simply don't get it online. You know, I mean, the other day I had to buy a washing machine, and I, I was online. I checked it out, and then I struggled to get into the into the macro site. Eventually, I just went to the shop and picked it up. And I was so glad I did because seeing them physically made a huge difference. And having somebody explain what was actually what the differences were, and I was like, this was the best thing I could have done. So I do think, you know, having a hybrid way of of living our lives has to be the future. Um, and I think, you know, when I Look at how um, our people are dealing with lockdown and working remotely. I think there are those who love it so much, they never want to come back. And I think that's interesting. But I still want to see how those people will feel in a year's time. And, you know, as a result, I don't buy into the notion that um, businesses won't have a physical presence at all. Um, I think people will eventually want somewhere to go. You know, um, to feel that sense of belonging. Um, I think, you know, people, and maybe I'm speaking for myself because I actually love to connect um, with other humans in the same room, Um, but I think that connection is very different from the connection that you would have with somebody that you've only met online.
0: For sure. I I tell the story I was expelled from the house, so I had to come to the office, but... um, It was like a fight for bandwidth. If we were doing a podcast, no one could do anything. It was like, wait. <laughs> like, me. That I couldn't wait to get back to the office, to be honest with you. And I think that um, collaboration, it depends what sort of business you're in. But I think if you're in the creative, and I think that some of your principles and values are creativity, mm-hmm. you know, is, you know, working with others. Um, so it, it really depends, I suppose, on your values as an organisation as well, and, in terms of you know, how how much do you value people. If customer service is important to you, yeah. then you're probably going to want to create these interactions to enhance and and collaborate. Yeah, uh, I think
1: that's right. Um, and I, you know, even in the times when I've been in the office and you bump into somebody you haven't seen, obviously in months and months and months, and you remember that actually there was this thing we were going to do, we didn't do it. Let's actually get on with it, right? Um, or you start to realize that certain people are struggling with things you never even imagined that you're struggling with. It's, it's a most fascinating thing for me to be in the office now because I'm just constantly learning new things. Um, so I, I really value my time in the office. and I know that people who, go, who come to the office also value it. And so in many ways, um, I worry that towards the end of the year, we may have to insist, well, when, we, when the vaccine is out and it's all safe to be to be out. So maybe I'm being optimistic by saying the end of the year. Uh, But whenever that is, I think, you know, we'll have to find a way to make sure that people come into the office more often.
0: I mean, do you you think there's been a, I mean, you obviously run, so you're, you know, you look very fit and healthy. I mean, do you you see that health generally is something that's sort of been pushed to the forefront more for you personally? Or do, do you think you were always health conscious and aware of you
1: yeah, so definitely pushed more to the front now. Um, I mean, I've been a runner for a number of years, but certainly, you know, I had more time. So that because I wasn't traveling and so on, um, you have that extra hour. So what are you going to do with it, right? And um, so definitely, I think it is pushed more to the forefront. And also, um, I started cooking more because, you know, when you're working late at the office, chances are you're not making food. You're not cooking for yourself. Um, and I really enjoyed that. So I do think that the benefits of, um you know the the standard of living and um, and just the the values. Or how, how how can I put it differently? I think coming back to the simple things, no. cooking, um, going for that walk, um, the the things that actually make life meaningful much of the time. You know, spending time um, with the people you love and so on. I think those things have become much more important, and hopefully, um, we can take these things with us once this whole lockdown period is over and done with.
0: The experiences. So. I mean, you know, African Bank. It, it tells a sort of aspirational story about where you could go. But what, what are your plans for the next five to ten years? Is it okay. is that the focus? Is it to really embed yourself more in South Africa, or is it to take on the continent? What, what's what's your is it to go more digital or more stores? What's the plan for the next five to ten years?
1: Yeah, uh, so um, I think the opportunity over the next year. It absolutely has to be in consolidations. Um, I think there are going to be businesses that are going to struggle. um, The smaller banks are realizing the importance of scale much more now than maybe was the case a year or two ago. So I think those opportunities are there. And I think if we can spend the next year or two um, do a few acquisitions to bulk up the the bank, um, create a more holistic product suite for our customers, and also hopefully acquire more customers as we go through that process. Then hopefully in the next five years, um, you'll have a, a bulkier bank that's much more diversified than what we have now. And then I agree with you. I think you know if we have to think about the next ten years, and we know that we have to become a software um, a software business with a banking license, we absolutely then need to be using that to explore. Um, outside at least static as a starting point um, and yeah. then of course the rest of the continent but my expectation is that in five years time this market will look so different um, that the opportunities will also be different and I think you know we'll need to make sure that we remain agile and can take advantage of them.
0: And I mean you know as one of the leading women in financial services are you seeing gender empowerment growing in the continent, are you seeing, I mean, I think the UN said uh, advancing women leadership is their biggest initiative for the year ahead. Are you seeing gender empowerment and growing gender empowerment as an important aspect for South Africa or the continent?
1: You know, it's a difficult question, that. um, I think there definitely are more female leaders. And we, my sister's one of them, so you can imagine, um, I, I kind of lived that narrative. And um, there definitely are more female leaders. And I definitely see that um, they're doing exceptionally well. I mean, I'm really pleased with the amount of support that they're getting, et cetera. But what does worry me is um, when we get together and we have conversations, we face so many of the same challenges in terms of all the, the kind of the glass ceiling, right, if you will. So you break through one glass ceiling but I can't try another one. Um so I think, you know, we, all of us speak the right language around needing to um, embrace gender, uh, um, at least female leadership, but I'm not entirely convinced yet that our systems um, and institutions are ready to, to embrace it um, and accept it for what it is.
0: And, and do you think that, I mean, some of the people have said to me that, uh, you know, the, the way of work is essentially developed by, by men, for men, and I think COVID sort of shown that women take on a far greater role in the work environment, Um, especially when they have children as well. It's almost like a a dual role. Um, Do you you see that changing? Do you see the rules of the game sort of changing? Do you you see that as one of the important things that needs to change?
1: I do. Um, I think, you know, we would have a much better world if um, both genders, or I should say all genders, um, are given equal opportunities to to do the things that matter most to them. Um, you know, one of my my sisters um, works more outside the home than her husband. Um, and as a result, he can play a much um, you know, a, a bigger role in, ter- in terms of raising their son. So I think it, it needs to be that, right? I think there needs to be a negotiation uh, um, you know, between couples to figure out how best to, to manage those differences. Cheryl Sandberg, in her book, Lean In, she yeah. said that one of the best things um, about um, one of the things that it has enabled her to be successful in her career is that she had a husband who was supportive. And, and I think that's what this has to be about, that how do we make sure that we have an understanding of what that actually means, what that actually looks like, um, and, and that we embrace it. So it isn't only about businesses having childcare facilities for, for, you know, for, for, for their workers. I think it absolutely has, also has to be about changes in the home and changes in mindset. Um, and, and I think that takes longer, but I do think we're on that journey now.
0: And and so I know we're running out of time and you're busy and you've probably got a a, a squadron of people wanting to meet with you. But, I mean, what what do you see the future of Africa? Um, How do you see things in the coming years? What excites you What what do you see on the horizon?
1: So I saw a a rather um, sad headline um, just before I got on the call with you about how democracy in Africa was dying, right? Um, I think that's probably about the Uganda story. But I mean, having said that, you know, I've been watching a lot of African voices on CNN lately, you know, lockdown. Um, and the number of people I see doing amazing things in fashion um, in, in um, entertainment, so Bollywood continues to grow in leaps and bounds. Um, even in South Africa, people doing inc- incredible things in fintech and fashion and so on. So I do think that we should have a lot of faith in what young people are going to get up to and how they're going to see things differently um, and, and, and grow as entrepreneurs and as a result, take this whole continent along with them. So I feel very optimistic. I mean, if we're going to be the youngest continent um, in the world, um I think in the next fifty years or the there's no question that that energy will give rise to a lot more entrepreneurship um and a lot more activity that will drive the growth of our economies
0: for sure, I think the free trade agreement and the you know those things are really gaining momentum now, so that should open things up for all people to do business cheaper, easier, quicker with the, the, the yeah. biggest continent really
1: no absolutely, yeah, I really hope that happens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we all do, right? I think things are moving the right way, though.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. We're saying all the right things. Um, but look, I mean, if you accept that with time, things generally tend to improve. So at the moment, I'm reading The um, Factfulness, I think it's called, Um and and look, it's it's true. In you know, if you look at the the course of history, we have lifted people out of poverty. So there's a lot less poverty than there used to be before. Kids are being vaccinated. The trajectory of the world is upwards. Um, yeah. And we just have to to know that. Look, you know, even though we may sometimes take one step forward and two steps back, the trajectory is positive.
0: For sure. Sonny, good luck with your results. Um, thank we, we know they're coming out soon. Congratulations on steering the ship in the right direction. I know that your performance has been accelerated the last couple of years anyway. And thank you so much. Good luck for 2021 to you and the team. And thanks thank you so much so. for your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed meeting you and talking to you. And all the best to you, too, for the rest of the year.
0: Thank you. See you soon.
1: <laughs> okay, then. Bye.